จ่ายการรัฐประหารโดยคณะรักษาความสงบเรียบร้อยแห่งชาติหัวสอชอในปีพศ2557เป็นต้นมาสิทธิและเสรีภาพในการรับข้อมูล Hello and welcome to this New Mandala podcast. I'm Liam Gammon. I'm the editor of New Mandala. You were just listening to the voice of the Thai political scientist, Dr. Prajat Konkirati, who was reading out a statement on behalf of a group of attendees of the 13th International Conference on Thai Studies in Chiang Mai in July 2017. That statement called for the restoration of civil and political liberties that have been suspended by the incumbent military junta in Thailand. This act of protest provoked an official intimidation, with some of the people involved in that statement being called in for questioning by the authorities. More seriously, several other attendees and organisers of the conference were charged with violating the junta's ban on political gatherings, after some protesters later held up banners saying that an academic venue is not a military barracks. This latter case, in particular, has become emblematic of broader issues of freedom of expression and of academic freedom in Thailand. So, to delve deeper into these topics, on the 23rd of August, the Australian National University played host to a panel discussion with the theme of "Wither Academic Freedom in Thailand." And we're very happy to be able to bring you a recording of this conversation, jointly organised by the Department of Political and Social Change at the ANU's College of Asia and the Pacific. And the Center for International and Public Law at the ANU's College of Law. Dr. Nick Cheesman from the Department of Political and Social Change chaired the discussion. Here's Nick Cheesman introducing the panel. Good afternoon, everybody. I think we'll get underway. My name is Nick Cheesman. I'm a fellow in the Department of Political and Social Change, and I'll be chairing the session this afternoon on the topic of whether academic freedom in Thailand. Uh, the case uh, against the case of uh, Ajahn Chayan, Dr. Chayan, and four others. The case, as I think many of you will know, will arise uh, arose out of an international conference in Thailand in 2017. And so, one of the reasons that we're especially interested in this case is because it's a criminal prosecution that's emerged out of a gathering of academics and scholars in Thailand. It's not the only case being brought against an academic or Against university students in Thailand, as we'll be hearing about, but it's one which is especially interesting for that reason. But we do also want to go to more general questions of academic freedom in Thailand through this case, and more general questions of academic freedom going to the part that academic freedom has in the intellectual life that we have here in Australia and internationally. As well, and it's with that intention of working across those three levels that we gathered three speakers for the purpose of having this discussion. Now, the first thing I have to do before we proceed is to say that there have been some changes to our panel uh, for. Uh, reasons that are both uh, personal and health reasons. Uh, Professor Jacqueline Low and also Sarah Bishop are unable to join us today. Uh, that's the bad news. The happy news is that our first speaker, Craig Reynolds, is with us. And in addition to that, I'm pleased to say that we have online with us uh, Tyrrell Habercorn, who's presently in Bangkok and knows the case and the issues that we're dealing with today intimately, and also Professor Anthony Connolly from 
the uh, College of Law, and he, along with uh, Professor Jacqueline Lowe, has worked very uh, much on the question of academic freedom at the ANU and was responsible for the recent statement on academic freedom at this institution. So uh, it's a great pleasure to have uh, these three speakers assembled today. I am going to stay out of the picture as much as possible as chair. We have about 10 minutes for each one of the presenters and the remaining time we'll use to gather up and respond to as many of your questions and observations as possible. So let me turn to the first of our speakers, uh, Craig Reynolds. He's an historian of Southeast Asia, particularly the mainland and especially Thailand. He taught at the University of Sydney for 20 years and more recently at the ANU in the Faculty of Asian Studies. He's held visiting appointments at Cornell University, the University of California, Berkeley. He's currently chair of the Asian Studies Editorial Committee for ANU Press and also is a fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities. Craig, please join us. Okay, uh, thanks, Nick. So, um, when we decided on how to divide the labors here, I offered to give a brief account of the, of the incident that is the focus of the discussion that took place last uh, July in Chiang Mai, Thailand at an international conference. And then I was gonna provide some context and background. Why did this happen then? Uh, why there? Uh, is there anything new about what happened? Historians don't think there's anything really new that happens, so uh, there is a background. And what's the big deal? But first I want to make a couple of general comments, maybe relevant to the general discussion we might have at the end of the uh, uh, um, presentations. Uh, the first thing to say is that in my judgment, this thing called academic freedom is not an absolute. It's contingent. It's a different space in different contexts depending on constraints that are political, legal, religious, and cultural. You can't really say, we have it here, they don't have it there. Was there academic freedom at this international conference in Chiang Mai, Thailand last July, in a country ruled by a military junta, calling itself the National Council for Peace and Order, playing a tricky game with a quixotic king who had been waiting for the throne most of his adult life? The answer is both yes and no. Yes, there was a quite a lot of academic freedom, for reasons I'll explain shortly. And no, there were certain things you couldn't talk about. And conference delegates refrained from talking about those things. But that's not to say that those things weren't talked about at previous international conferences in Thailand, because conditions were different on those other occasions. And I'll give some examples in a minute. The second general comment I have is that academic freedom is vulnerable. It's fragile everywhere. It's fragile because it is so vulnerable. A case in point might be, although I may be corrected on my facts here, is that the ANU statement on academic freedom was issued, if I'm not mistaken, after the negotiations over the Ramsey grant were discontinued early this year. It did seem more than coincidence that the university suddenly saw fit to fix up and shore up the vulnerable thing called academic freedom, given that Ramsey academics might be present in classrooms monitoring what was being taught, or at least that was what the press uh, at some points uh, alleged. So the incident, what happened last July? 
The conference is called the International Conference on Thai Studies. And this was the 13th meeting of this international conference. And three people who are on the screen there held up a sign in Thai writing that said, an academic forum is not a military camp. Well, maybe another translation would be an academic venue is not a military camp. The conference wasn't being held at a university campus, but on a huge convention center uh, complex. So the venue was outside a university. The convention center had become an academic place. The three people holding up the sign on the 18th of July, 2017, were protesting what happened the previous day when a group of conference delegates, Thai and foreign, calling themselves the Community of International Academics, issued a joint statement with 176 signatures calling for the return of democracy to Thailand. The statement called for the free exchange of knowledge without suppression, control, or distortion, and asked the state to respect the rights and freedom of expression of opinion. The statement called for the return of democracy to the country, meaning elections. The military authorities were present at the press conference called by this community of international academics, which, by the way, simply meant the delegates who signed the, uh, the statement. And photographs were taken, names were recorded. So an academic forum is not a military camp. The following day, held up by these three, uh, uh, these three folks, was a reaction to the intrusion of the military authorities into the conference venue and monitoring the assembly of conference delegates calling for the return of democracy. The fact that the statement is in Thai shows that the intended audience was a Thai-speaking reading audience. The authorities, the Thai public, for there were journalists present, and not really the conference participants. And you'll note the laid-back nature of what the words say. It's a declarative statement. It doesn't say, soldiers, get out of here. Soldiers, get off our turf. It just says, academic space is not military space. They are different kinds of spaces. Following the display of the Thai words, an academic forum is not a military camp, these three people and two others, including the conference convener and a journalist, were charged with violating a ban on political gatherings of five or more. The conference convener is a very distinguished anthropologist, Professor Chayan Wanaput, who is head of the RCSD, the Regional Center for Social Sciences and Sustainable Development in Chiang Mai University. The charge that the three, plus two, had violated a ban on political gatherings of five or more is odd, because the five never appeared together in the same place. Professor Chayan was doing conference convener type things, directing his team of assistants, crisis managing, seeing to the care of conference delegates who had fallen ill. He seemed to be everywhere, but one place he was not was at the gathering of the three holding up the sign. The absence of a political gathering of five hasn't stopped the prosecutors from proceeding with the case. I need to say something about ICTS, the International Conference on Thai Studies. So this International Conference on Thai Studies is a movable feast that has been going every three years for about 35 years. The first one in 1981 was in India, and more than half have been in Thailand, others in Europe, the USA, Kunming, China, and a couple times in Australia. 
in Sydney in 2014, and here in Canberra in 1987. It was in July, in the winter, and in the Coombs Building, where many panels took place, that the heating system failed in 1987. Thai participants were inconvenienced, to say the least, but typically very polite about any discomfort they were experiencing. The language of these conferences is always English, although Thai delegates in recent years have sometimes sought and received permission from conference organizers to speak in Thai. Last July, I went to a panel on education in Muslim schools and the problems they have with the Ministry of Education in Thailand. And some papers were in Thai. Simultaneous translation was provided if you needed it. 99% of the panels were in English. English is the medium for practical reasons. The host institution wants to welcome visitors, whether they know Thai language or not. The Thai education authorities have always wanted to disseminate Thai scholarship to the rest of the world, now more than ever, as they strive to raise the standard of research performance globally. So that's another practical reason to use English at the conference. But English gives permission to say things you might not be able to say or want to say in Thai. And with foreign delegates present and Thai and international journalists covering the event, the international conferences on Thai studies held within the country have always been sites of protest. Well, I should say almost always. Sometimes political conditions have muted protests, and because of constraints on academic freedom, there are always calls for foreign delegates to boycott the conference, as there were before the conference last July. Boycott the conference, because otherwise you're giving tacit support to the National Council for Peace and Order. From the get-go in 1984, the first time the conference was held in Thailand, there have been protests at ICTS. Some writers and academics, as well as Thailand's most famous public intellectual, the author and publisher Suluk Siwaluk, were in jail in 1984. Conference delegates prepared a petition calling for their release, and before sending it to the prime minister's office, they held a news conference. The foreign delegate meeting the press was asked if he thought by sending this position, petition to the prime minister's office, he and the signatories were interfering in Thai political life. But the delegate was a novice, and he didn't understand the Thai verb interfere. So rather than asking what the word meant, which would have been the sensible thing to do, he finessed the question and said, no comment. Are you interfering in Thai affairs? No comment. Thus, in effect, saying that yes, they were interfering in Thai affairs. He was later complimented by a Thai human rights lawyer for giving a smart answer, whereas in fact his Thai language just wasn't up to the mark. No comment was the best he could do when he was asked that question. In 2008, the International Conference on Thai Studies was held in Bangkok. There had been a military coup in 2006, and there was a call to boycott the conference. But conditions, as I might call them, were favorable for frank discussion and by means of astute academic diplomacy with sympathetic university authorities, the host institution agreed to allow three panels on the Thai monarchy, including a panel devoted to the path-breaking biography of King Pumipon, The King Never Smiles by Paul Handley. As Yale University Press had moved towards publication, the Thai government tried very hard to halt the publication, and, and Yale University did, did delay publication for a few months for the king's 60th year on the throne, but published the book later in the year. The conference organizers and the host institution had to agree to filming the monarchy panels, 
And there was a fight about whether or not a copy of the film could be kept by the university, just to check to make sure that it was used properly. Present at the panels were the special branch political police. They were conspicuous in their black t-shirts and their shoes shined to a high gloss. Nobody was arrested. Nobody was charged with defamation of the monarch. Nobody was called in for questioning. But that was in 2008. A month after the ICTS in Sydney in 2014, there was another military coup, May 2014. And it was unthinkable that the ICTS in Chiang Mai late last year could have held panels on the Thai monarchy. Things had changed. The ninth king had passed away the previous year, and the National Council for Peace and Order was much more vigilant about political assembly. People from all walks of life were being detained and questioned. One person, if I remember correctly, was detained for reading George Orwell's 1984 in a public place. And this public display of Orwell's famous book was not without irony, because one of the reasons given for detaining and questioning writers, academics, journalists, and activists was that said persons were in need of attitude adjustment. You need to get your head in the right place, a very Orwellian idea. My last comment has to do with surveillance. It is a fact of life in Thai academic life that the authorities monitor what goes on in lectures, seminars, and conferences. Authorities are sent onto the campuses. Sometimes these messengers are trained and know what they are looking for. Sometimes, if trained personnel are in short supply, they don't know what information they are collecting. And their presence is a topic of mild amusement and anecdote. Conference conveners are visited by the authorities before the conference begins and interviewed about who is doing what. The aim of these interventions is to make a map of networks. Who knows whom? Who associates with whom? Lecturers usually know which students in their class are reporting to the outside. That was a good question, I said after I gave a lecture a few years ago in an upcountry Thai universe, university. Who was that student? She's a good student, I was told. She's the niece of the governor, and we're pretty sure she reports back. The statement, an academic forum is not a military camp, is not new. Nearly three years ago, a couple of Chiang Mai academics, a history professor and a lecturer in law, were called before a military court for some things they had said about a local land dispute. And they responded with the statement that a university is not a military camp. I think the prosecution of the case was ultimately dropped. But the point was made. A university may not be a military camp, but the army asserts its right to monitor what goes on there. And we saw this again in July last year at the ICTS in Chiang Mai. Would the charge of illegal assembly have been prosecuted if those holding the sign had been foreign delegates and the sign was in English? An interesting question. I suspect not. But in this case, the sign was in Thai, so no permission given for that message because it was not in English. And those holding the signs were Thai citizens, not interfering foreigners. Academics are always a threat to Thai military governments because they don't abide by military discipline and because they think. Well, they are supposed to think. Thank you very much, uh, Craig Reynolds. Our second speaker is Tyrrell Haberkorn, as mentioned. Uh, she is an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She writes on state violence and human rights, and she's just published a book this year out with the University of Wisconsin Press titled In Plain Sight, 
impunity and human rights in Thailand. Uh, Tiru, uh, over to you. Uh, thanks for the introduction, and it's wonderful uh, to join colleagues at ANU, even if even if from afar. Um, I'll just offer a few a few more details on the case after uh, Craig Reynolds' wonderful wonderful introduction and and history of academic freedom and struggles over academic freedom in Thailand. Um, the first thing I want to note, because Craig has already. Uh, given us a sense of what happened and what, what was classed as criminal, is to talk about the law under which the five individuals are, are being prosecuted. And I should also back up and note that in addition to Adan Tayan, uh, there are, there's another PhD student and lecturer at Chiang Mai University who is being prosecuted, two students who are being prosecuted, and then also an independent scholar and translator is also among, among the five. So it's a quite diverse group. They're being prosecuted under Article 12 of Head of the National Council for Peace and Order, Order Number 3. Uh, the, one of the things that this particular regime has, has done sort of in in vast quantities has been to not only pass laws through a junta appointed national legislative assembly, but when they wanted to be expedient or to make sure they retained complete control over the text of laws is they've simply promulgated orders and announcements that are then treated, treated as law in that people are arrested for allegedly violating them and then prosecuted uh, for allegedly violating them, and then in some cases imprisoned uh, for having been judged to have violated them. The particular section of this head of the National Council for Peace and Order order prohibits the political assembly or the assembly of people for political purposes of five or more. Um, and as Craig noted, the assembly uh, number here is, is, a, is a big question. The other, the other piece that is a big question and that seems will become quite significant during the trial um, is the precise meaning of political purpose, uh, as well as there's another word in Thai, which is in the law, which is muasum, which means to assemble for unlawful purpose. So the prosecution will have to prove that holding up this sign was not only an assembly of five or more persons, even though it does not appear to have been five or more people who are present in that photograph, unless our eyes are playing tricks on us, um, but also that that was both political and also for an unlawful purpose. Um, I have to say, I don't envy the prosecutor in trying to figure out how to make that argument. On the other hand, there may be a fascinating discussion of what constitutes the political that emerges, that emerges from this. Um, to back up and give a little bit of a, a broader context, as Craig noted, uh, academic events of all kinds, any kind of public event, even outside universities that are about that, are monitored by the authorities in Thailand. And often it's the Santiban political branch police, as well as sometimes local police will come. And then often different branches of a local army army camp will come also to events. And even though they're out of uniform, they're pretty easy to pick out, um, either through their shoes or they seem to favor polo shirts with uh, different gun brands on them as well. And, and they, their jeans are usually ironed, even if they've tried to put them on to, uh, 
to blend in with, with the audience. Um, their presence has become so regular since the coup in 2014 that I've been at many events where the organizers will include them in their greetings at the beginning of an event. So it will say, you know, hello to all of the Santiban and military intelligence who are present as well. Um, one could hope perhaps some of their minds and attitudes might be changed by listening to, to public lectures and public discussions. They've intervened uh, and interfered in um, at least 264 events. What intervene or interfere means is that sometimes they'll come and they will say, you may hold your event, but you may not use these particular words. I was at a, an event at Tamazat University on the third anniversary of the coup, where the intelligence allowed a group of student activists to hold a day of academic seminars on the legal, environmental, um, and social aspects of living under military rule, but said, you may not use the words coup, National Council for Peace and Order, um, or soldier in your presentations. The organizers and speakers responded in a quite daring and risky way to, instead of using those words and speaking them out loud, they held up signs with those words when they would have, with, when they would have uttered them. Sometimes, um, sometimes the interference is much more overt and the power to a building will be cut or a building will be locked before an event is to be held. In addition, there have been at least 136 uh, events that have not been allowed. The, the two final comments that I, that I want to make is one, a, a very quick update on this case and where it's going. Um, and then the broader context, not only of academic freedom, but constriction of freedom of thought under the regime. There was a, the latest hearing in this case was quite recent. It was this past Monday. And on Monday, the five entered their, the five accused entered their plea of not guilty. Um, and it, there was agreement in the courtroom that the actions are not, are not disputed. What took place is not disputed. But the meaning of those actions, if it was, if it was a political assembly and what its purpose were, will be what the, what the trial will be about. Um, at this stage, the next hearing has been set for the end of September, September 24th, and that will be for admission of the prosecution's documentary evidence, uh, which includes still photographs taken by uh, state authorities, as well as in this vast convention center that, that the conference was held in, there was closed circuit uh, TV cameras. So, uh, the prosecution is also making use of that footage. So, so this next hearing will be about that evidence. And then after that, the prosecution and defense witnesses uh, will, be, will be set, um, likely for the end of this year and continuing through the beginning of next year. Um, the final comment is that this regime, as, as Craig alluded to with the detention of someone for reading George Orwell's book 1984 in public um, is very concerned with thought and with limiting thought. And it can be seen not only in the monitoring of academic and other, other public discussions, but also in the large number of citizens who've been prosecuted for a violation of Article 112 or committing les majesty, um, often for only circulating news or asking questions about the role of the monarchy in the polity. Um, and 
and with the regime's desire to adjust the attitude of the people. Um, so it's all to say that that raising questions and pushing forward um, with critical thought is has become, at least in this moment in Thailand, a political act. I'll end there. Our third speaker this afternoon is Anthony Connolly. He is a professor and head of school of the ANU Law School. He researches and publishes in the fields of legal philosophy, public law, and indigenous rights. And he is a member of the University Academic Board's Subcommittee on Academic Freedom, which is the capacity in which we've invited him to speak to us today. Over to you. So notwithstanding the short notice of my invitation, I'm very pleased to be here. And um, my comments to some degree will re uh, reflect, I think, the, uh, uh, the limited period I had to engage specifically with this case and uh, with the Thai uh, legal questions, particularly constitutional questions uh, that surround this case. So my intention uh, today is really just to speak to the legal context surrounding academic freedom in the Australian context at large. Uh, and then, if I have time, perhaps make some comments in relation to the normative framework in which we at the ANU exercise academic freedom and engage in academic activities. And I'm hoping, and the two speakers who've gone before me, I think, point to the possibility that my comments might have some resonance uh, with the uh, discussion or that's already taken place um, here. Uh, so unlike Thailand, uh, Australia has no express constitutional protection for academic freedom at either the Commonwealth, state, or territorial levels. And I must say it came as a surprise to me, with a very limited understanding of the Thai legal system, to discover that uh, the Constitution of the Kingdom of Thailand Article 34, paragraph 2, actually has a constitutional and overt express constitutional protection. It reads, academic freedom is protected. Boom, a very clear statement. But as with so many other statements of constitutional rights around the world, uh, but the exercise of that freedom must not be contrary to the duties of the Thai people or the good morals of the people and must respect and not obstruct different views of other persons. So we have a statement of protection and a statement, if you like, a qualification of that protection. And this pattern, I must say, of rights protection, whether constitutional, statutory, or otherwise, is very common and is the case here in Australia within the legal regime that operates around academic freedom here. But as I said, the Constitution's uh, Commonwealth, State and Territory of Australia don't have anything like this uh, in their text. Indeed, they have no express constitutional protections of free speech generally either, or indeed of many of the civil and political rights that have found expression in constitutional protections and bills of rights across a range of countries in the world, which makes us to some degree unusual, and it's been commented on many times uh, in political and academic uh, and other spheres that we are out of step, if you like, constitutionally with, with uh, much of the world, including many uh, countries, nation states who share our history and political culture. 
But nonetheless, uh, there it is. The ACT and Victoria, two uh, federal units, if you like, of the uh, Australian state, uh, do have human rights acts or bills of rights, which are statutory, not constitutional, and which are therefore vulnerable to override by their parliaments at any time by a normal majority uh, vote. And even in them, academic freedom doesn't feature, though things such as freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom to gather, and so on do. And these are not irrelevant, of course, to uh, this question. Now, the reasons for this lack of expressed constitutional rights in the Australian context lies in the history of Australia's constitutional development, going back into colonial times, where from the 19th century, or really from the 18th century, uh, into the 19th century, and then into the dawn, if you like, of the 20th, when the federal uh, constitution was uh, drafted and enacted, uh, Australia has adopted what you might call a British Westminster-style ideology, or political ideology, about the inherent rights-protecting nature of parliamentary democracy and the common law. So Great Britain doesn't have, the United Kingdom doesn't have a uh, constitutional bill of rights either. It has been assumed and continues to be assumed uh, by the High Court here to a large extent uh, that if you have a well-functioning parliamentary democracy and if the rule of law operates in the nation, then that's all the rights protection you need. You can trust your parliament to do the right thing by you statutorily. You can trust the parliament and the courts to ensure that an executive government uh, doesn't uh, unjustifiably breach people's rights and so on. And therefore, no need for a constitutionally entrenched bill of rights, such as the United States has, or Canada for that matter, uh, which opens up the possibility for an activist judiciary with grossly disproportionate powers. Uh, to the parliament and the executive. So notwithstanding the fact we haven't got an express provision in Australia, we do have, uh, as of 1992, a statement by the High Court that the Australian Constitution implicates an implied freedom, or the, the term right is a little incorrect in this context, but we can use them as uh, uh, roughly equivalent here. A freedom of political communication that arises out of the parliamentary nature of that constitutional system. Namely, political communication or free political communication is a necessary condition of the popular democracy uh, that the constitution does establish uh, operating effectively. So the High Court uh, held that there was an implied freedom of political communication within the Australian Constitution. The effect of this was that all parliaments in Australia, Commonwealth, State and Territory, were and are constrained in legislating or otherwise exercising the power of the state at the executive level in a manner which unreasonably or disproportionately interferes with the ability or freedom of citizens and others to communicate about political matters. And this notion of what a political matter was and what political communication is was interpreted very broadly by the court, uh, generously, if you like. And that's uh, basically it. This implied freedom. There has been arguments run in the High Court about associated freedoms of, of, uh, of, of meeting or association. Uh, there, uh, there's been an implied right to vote derived along the same kind of argument. But uh, that's as far as it goes here constitutional protection. 
And what constitutional, why constitutional protection is significant and why the Thai situation is so interesting is that it is only a constitutionally entrenched set of rights or protections uh, which can limit even the parliament itself. So in Australia, the constitution governs the activities of the parliament, of, of the Commonwealth, states and territories. Uh, they are subject to its provisions, and if they are in breach of its provisions, then an application may be made to the High Court, as our Supreme Constitutional Court, to have that government action or that legislation declared invalid and so on. There is remedies available to people who have suffered as a result. Um, so that's the advantage of it. Uh, with statutory uh, protections, they are vulnerable to a new government getting control of the parliament, particularly the lower house, and removing protections uh, at will through normal legislative processes. So putting that particular implied freedom in place was quite a, a big step for a court in 92, which, uh, if you recall, at the same year was also the court that uh, delivered the Mabo judgment as well. Quite a, uh, an influential and important uh, court under Anthony Mason at the time. What does this say, though, to the question of academic freedom, uh, particularly from state interference in Australia? Well, there's two points I want to make here in relation to this constitutional protection of political communication and how far it goes to protecting constitutionally academic freedom in Australia. The first is to note the limited scope of this protection. It protects, to some uh, degree, political communication uh, and uh, other activities potentially relating to the maintenance of a functioning parliamentary democracy. But we know that there's more to academic activity and academic freedom than political communication, or even communication per se, if that was covered here. If we think about academic freedom very crudely here, at least as a starting point, as the freedom of academics, and there's the question of who are they, uh, people employed by an academic institution, academic and professional staff potentially, the students at an academic institution, uh, authorised visitors to an academic institution could also call on that freedom uh, under certain uh, conditions. Uh, the freedom of academics in their role as academics, qua academics, not in their private capacity, or in a, in a field for which they're not necessarily uh, uh, authorised, excuse me, or uh, qualified to, to, to speak, uh, to do academic things or engage in academic activities, teaching, research, and a whole range of other things, without unreasonable interference from either outside or inside the institution. And there's a very important distinction to be made here between the kind of interference that's at stake in this particular Thai example, namely interference with academic activity that's coming from outside, that's coming from the state, from the government, and then there is, of course, a whole range of interference that can take place within an institution, from a vice chancellor's office, a head of school's office, or a whole range of other places, even from student bodies up, uh, interfering with, potentially, uh, and potentially unreasonably interfering with uh, the activity of, of academics on campus and so on. But this particular constitutional protection I'm referring to here is very narrow. There are a whole range outside uh, that uh, particular um, scope, political communication, that is not uh, covered by this uh, thinking, reading, <laughs> inquiring, experimenting, uh, and a whole range of research-related activities that don't involve communication. Uh, and clearly not all communication within the academic sphere is reasonably characterised as political, though a lot of it is nonetheless. 
and certainly the communication that was taking place in this Thai example that was clearly political. But even if we had an implied freedom or an even express freedom of academic activity in our constitution, that wouldn't mean that we had adequate protection. And the Thai example is classic here. We, we've yet to see how this case plays out, but there is an overt express protection in the constitution. And yet, the uh, academics in question here have been prosecuted, and we'll see how this case plays out. Why is that? And this gets back to, to your point, Craig, is that even constitutional rights, even express constitutional rights, are not absolute. They are always, and indeed in the Australian context, in the, in the context of political communication rights, uh, subject to a balancing act on the part of judges generally, in the con case of constitutional rights, the constitutional court, they're balanced and examined, evaluated in light of other commitments that the constitution is committed to, whether they be privacy rights, property rights, uh, the effective operation of government, uh, channeling executive power through economic and other crises or whatever it might be, getting, getting the nation through an emergency and so on. So it's not clear that the mere presence of a, uh, a constitutional right in a constitution, uh, a right to academic freedom in a constitution, uh, would uh, be uh, sufficient to enable an adequate standard by some set of criteria lying outside the constitution, clearly, uh, to be uh, protected. In Australia, then, we have an issue. We have very little constitutional protection. We are forced, if you like, to rely, therefore, on statutory protection. Uh, if we look for a legal response and not merely an administrative internal response uh, to this question. And there are a range of laws in place in Australia, statutory laws and common law uh, rules, which can, can assist and do independently and, and collectively uh, support uh, academics in the free exercise of academic activities. General laws such as criminal laws can prevent people physically interfering with you, communicating your research or giving a presentation or making a speech or, and so on, clearly. Discrimination laws, general discrimination laws and statutes, racial discrimination, gender discrimination may protect a group of academics, for example, from being unreasonably or unjustly denied funding for a research project. So even something like that can play a role in facilitating the freedom, at least, of those vulnerable uh, groups of academics or kinds of academics. We have education-specific legislation in Australia that overtly promote, uh, states its uh, commitment to academic freedom. The Higher Education Support Act, which regulates the operation of funding, in particular of universities in Australia, uh, includes in its objects supporting a higher education system that promotes and protects free intellectual inquiry in learning, teaching and research. Our constituting piece of legislation, the Australian National University Act, 91, uh, though it makes no explicit mention of academic freedom, and that's interesting in itself, it does set out that one of the functions of the university is to advance and transmit knowledge by undertaking research and teaching of the highest quality. And there are a range of supporting documents here which indicate that academic freedom is a necessary condition of being able to advance and transmit knowledge of this kind. So that particular provision could be read to include an implicit commitment there. That's the legal framework. The problem with the statutes is that they can be changed by a hostile government with control of a parliament at any time. Okay? 
to the extent you trust your parliament, uh, you might be a trusting of the regime in place. Uh, but parliaments come and go, governments come and go, and there can be quite radical changes of approach to a whole range of things, uh, as the United States is, is currently uh, illustrating for us uh, with changes of government. At another level then, within the ANU, and this really relates to internal interference, we have a whole range of policies and norms in place that again are designed to protect the freedom of our academics to engage in their legitimate ac academic uh, activity. We have uh, a code of conduct, we have an ANU academic expertise and public debate policy, which states, among other things, that uh, the university uh, def will defend the right of academic uh, staff at the ANU to speak in their areas of expertise and so on. The problem, if you like, in a way here, and one of the things the academic board has been working on, is these are disparate. They're, they're across about 15 or 20 different policy documents and need to be clarified, rationalised, perhaps into one policy so that they're more effectively understood and more effectively, hopefully, uh, implemented. All right, I think I'll leave it there then for the time being. Thank you very much, Tony. I'd like to ask if both you and Craig would come to the table. And we have a little bit over 10 minutes left for questions and discussion from the floor. And so uh, the floor is open, please. Mark Nolan from the ANU College of Law. A question for Tyrrell, just to confirm that this prosecution is being held in a civilian criminal court. Um, and was there ever a risk that it would be heard by a military tribunal for breach of the order? Uh, thanks, Mark, for the question. Yes, this is being held in the uh, the Chiang Mai, the San Quang Chiang Mai. So it's being held in a Chiang Mai civil civil court. There was no possibility of it being held in a military court because um, in September of 2016, the NCPO issued an order that stopped the initiation of new military court cases under some provisions. I should back up and say, um, just as background for the rest of the audience on Mark's question, um, right after the coup in May of 2014, uh, military jurisdiction of military courts was extended to civilian crimes against the crown and state. And for the first time since, um, since the late 1970s. And civilian crimes against the crown and state were classified as any violations of National Council for Peace and Order orders, um, as well as Les Majesty's sedition, and then a whole range of, um, of weapons and, uh, and terrorism charges. Um, but, but the sedition, public assembly, Les Majesty, etc., after September 2016, new cases were not initiated. Anything that was still going on is still being held there. But so this case is, is firmly in the civilian in the civilian court system. Tony Reid, um, I wondered if, if any of you could say anything about the international um, extension of this idea of university freedom. I recall in the past been calls on the, the um, academics union or some other, or the university itself to suspend relations or to, to in some way indicate uh, dis 
pleasure of other universities or, or governments uh, impugning academic freedom. Uh, is there anything in ANU policy or um, Australian or Thai law that makes that, uh, that encourages or discourages that? Peter Jackson, a question for Tyrrell, um, given that you're in Thailand at the moment. I was, we're aware of these, those of us who are in the ac academy are, are aware of the situation and the case that you've been outlining. I was just wondering, is it getting coverage in the Thai press or media in any way? Um, because I've been noticing that even though, as Craig mentioned, you know, it's difficult increasingly to, to speak openly about the monarchy um, in the last 10 years. in, in but. There are criticisms of the government increasingly, it seems to me, in the press, um, at least in the English language press and, increase in, and some of the Thai press. So I was wondering whether this is getting any coverage at all locally and what might be said in that sense. Thank you. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, there's two kind of dimensions to your question. What's going on at the international level? And one thing you might ask is, what, what does international law have to say about this? There's been a lot of human rights instruments uh, adopted by the United Nations, for example, over the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, the, the key ones, uh, the covenants on uh, civil and political rights and social, economic and cultural rights and so on, don't mention this specifically, but UNESCO, when it was formed, was given a very important role in uh, clarifying the nature and the value of academic freedom globally, recognising, if you like, the global dimension of academic work, uh, teaching and, and, most importantly, uh, research. Um, and it drafted a very influential set of statements uh, over uh, about a decade from the, in the 1970s and 80s uh, articulating this. Interestingly, uh, Australia has, as a member of uh, UNESCO, and had, had adopted, if you like, uh, many of these statements uh, of what it meant and why it mattered, and articulated a commitment, if you like, as a nation state to, um, uh, to protecting it internally. Uh, that's the first part uh, of the question. The second uh, relates to what can a university like the ANU do in relation to uh, challenges to breaches of threats to academic freedom in other countries around the world. And certainly this is something academic board has, has, has considered. Um, it's certainly, as, as the, the body that speaks, if you like, and participates in the governance of the university that represents uh, academics within the university, as distinct from the Senate and so on, the Vice-Chancellor's office. Um, it, it's, as I understand it, possible for the academic board to move a motion, express its support, if you like, for academics under threat to their freedom uh, elsewhere. The extent to which uh, the executive office of the VC might intervene there or have concerns about that is an interesting question. I don't know what the answer to that would be. Um, but certainly there is a potential for that. Uh, as well as for a government, for that matter, uh, on behalf of some lobby group or set of its citizens to do so. So nothing stands in the way of that as a political uh, activity, as a political uh, communication or message. Um, I don't know uh, whether the ANU has ever formally made such rep you know, uh, representations to the world or to, to its Australian government, urging them to do something, or independently just communicated directly with uh, with academics whose freedom is under threat. Sure. Um, so I would urge I would urge everyone interested in these questions in Thailand in everywhere to just Google Scholars at Risk. Um, it's an international network that is based at 
New York University, although not formally part of the university. Um, very soberingly, they have an action on a case almost every day. Um, and it's, they, they work, their mandate is very, very specific. It's to, it's to work around challenging violations of academic freedom globally, as well as um, to respond to threats against students and scholars um, who are being targeted for peaceful political expression. So for example, they've followed and issued several open letters and, and appeals on this case in Chiang Mai, as well as several other cases in, in Thailand. The other piece of their work is that um, the international network piece of it is not only individual, individual students, scholars, and, and people outside universities who join their network of people who write letters, but also there are universities that are members. And I cannot remember if the ANU is a member. I know that they're connected to the National Tertiary Education Union and that many Australian universities are members. Um, so, so, and membership means that a university has agreed that they support, uh, support the principles underlying scholars at risk. It doesn't necessarily imply that the universities will issue statements or, um, or necessarily provide cover to scholars. That's the other piece of scholars at risks work, um, which is that when there are scholars who need to leave their, um, their countries of origin to, to protect their lives um, or either this, this, their security of their lives or to avoid um, unjust prosecution for peaceful expression, then Scholars at Risk works with their partners to find, um, to find them a university willing to host them uh, or, or to begin the asylum process. Um, in response to, to Peter's question, uh, media, both print, sort of print and, and internet media, as well as, and television, as well as social media under this regime is quite a fascinating question because although there's a tremendous amount of surveillance and at times certain television programs, particularly those on voice TV have been sanctioned and told they have to go off air for a certain amount of time because they've been too critical of the junta. And although there's a tremendous amount of, um, of surveillance of social media, a great deal of information still circulates about what's taking place. Um, to give an example, there's an anti-junta activist, Ikatai Hong Gangwan, who was assaulted yesterday afternoon outside his house. Um, and that information circulated very, very quickly, both on Facebook and Twitter, and then it was covered by both the, um, the print and television media. This particular case um, has also been covered by, by Bracha Thai, which is an independent media site, as well as there is a network of Thai academics who work on social and political and civil rights who circulate information, as well as Thai Lawyers for Human Rights, which is both a legal advocacy and documentary group that one of, one of the primary things they do is also to consistently circulate information about, about cases. I would note, I was at the hearing this past Monday um, in Chiang Mai, and I would note that in this case, as well as other, other cases of prosecution under the junta that I've observed in the past few months, the media presence has dwindled. Um, and, and it's hard to know why that is. I don't think it's necessarily because media are being threatened. I think it's because there are, it's been four years of military rule and there have been hundreds of prosecutions. Um, and so it's become, 
I think quite dangerously, simply part of what's taking place. And in that sense, is is no longer necessarily newsworthy. It's the status quo. That concludes the discussion on wither academic freedom in Thailand, held at the Australian National University on the 23rd of August 2018. Thanks very much to the organisers and to the speakers for allowing us to record that conversation for you, Mandala. If you're listening to this at SoundCloud or at the New Mandala website, remember that you can also subscribe to all of our audio releases at iTunes or through the Apple Podcast app. Just do a search for New Mandala. Thanks for listening.